When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. February 21st, 1809. Sir, the territory of Illinois having been lately erected, I take the liberty of recommending the Honorable John Boyle as a suitable person to be appointed governor of that territory. I have had the pleasure of an intimate acquaintance with Mr. Boyle for several years. He has, in a very high degree, those attributes of head and heart which constitute the principal qualifications for a station so high and responsible. I mean, extent of information, correctness of judgment, soundness of discretion, decisiveness of action, and suavity of deportment. I am persuaded that his appointment to that office, such is his known worth, would give very general satisfaction to the people of the territory and of the Western country generally. I have the honor to be, sir, your most obedient servant, John Rowan. As we shall see increasingly so in future series, the early days of any presidency, from the early republic on to the present day, are primarily occupied with the business of getting offices of the administration filled with appointees. The Madison administration was no different, but for this incoming president, there were a few new considerations to take into account, including, but not limited to, the creation of a new territory. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Alicia from the Civics and Coffee podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. If you haven't listened to Civics and Coffee yet, you don't know what you're missing. In the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee or tea or whatever your beverage of choice is, Alicia shares with her audience a topic related to American history. In a well-researched, concise manner, she's delved into subjects including the Constitutional Convention and various topics related to the first few presidents. But in her journey through history, she doesn't restrict herself to a chronological examination. Rather, she will explore special topics that draw her interest or that are requested by her listeners. If you haven't listened to the episode of the special series on Alexander Hamilton yet, I highly recommend checking it out. Alicia was my special guest for that episode, and her insight and perspective on Hamilton was invaluable. As if all of that wasn't enough, Alicia is also a kind and cordial person who gives so much of her time, energy, and support to the podcasting community, and it is my pleasure and privilege to call her a friend. With all that said, do yourself a favor once you get done with this episode and check out Civics and Coffee. It's available through the website, which is civicsandcoffeealloneword.com, or you can search for Civics and Coffee anywhere fine podcasts can be found. As you may have guessed from the opening quote, the new territory in question was the Illinois Territory, created in the final days of the outgoing 10th United States Congress. This new territory had to be crafted out of the existing Indiana Territory, and the credit for its creation had to go to opponents of the territorial governor of Indiana, William Henry Harrison. Since its creation in 1800, 
and even with the organization of the Michigan Territory from the northeastern portion of it in 1805, the Indiana Territory covered a vast amount of land, from what is now the northeastern portion of Minnesota down through all of what is now Illinois, then over to modern-day Indiana. Though a good portion of the territory was still occupied by native peoples, it is still easy to understand how factions could develop in white populations in the scattered settlements, particularly depending on their proximity to the territorial capital of Vincennes. The issue of slavery in particular was becoming a point of contention in the territory. Prior to the establishment of the Indiana Territory, it had been governed by the slavery prohibition that had been written into the Northwest Ordinance, and indeed, this prohibition had continued on in the territory's evolution. However, some of the new incoming settlers, as well as longtime residents from the days when the area was under French jurisdiction, were calling for a loosening of the restrictions on slavery in order to promote the economy of the territory by lessening the cost of labor as well as encouraging new settlers from southern slaveholding states and territories. In particular, pro-slavery sentiment ran rampant in the Illinois country, while eastern portions of the territory trended anti-slavery at the time. In between these factions was Governor Harrison, who, while the introduction of slavery to the territory was not his main focus, also was not opposed to the idea. Demographics, however, would work against the pro-slavery proponents as the population grew disproportionately in the eastern portions of the territory, thus leading the territorial legislature to trend increasingly anti-slavery. Finally, against Harrison's wishes, pro-slavery representatives from the Illinois country came to an agreement with anti-slavery representatives from east of the Wabash River in 1808 that they would push for a division of the territory and elected Jesse B. Thomas as the new territorial representative to travel to Washington, D.C. to convince Congress of the plan. Thomas was successful in his mission, and on March 1, 1809, the Illinois Territory came into being, comprising all of modern-day Illinois and Wisconsin and part of Minnesota, as well as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. The incoming president, James Madison, would initially appoint John Boyle of Kentucky as the governor of the new territory and sent his nomination onto the Senate on March 6, 1809, but Boyle quickly decided that the position was not for him. Thus, he arranged for a bit of a switcheroo with the Chief Justice of the Kentucky State Supreme Court, Ninian Edwards. The 34-year-old Edwards was described by historian Clarence Walworth Alvord as, quote, possessed of an active mind, well-trained for that day, a confidence in himself which had been fostered by his rapid rise to the head of the Kentucky Bar, and a financial competence sufficient to make him a man of importance, quite apart from his political position. Friends of Edwards in Washington, including Senator John Pope, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky, worked to secure Edwards' appointment as territorial governor, which was accomplished by April 24th, while Boyle secured his place as Edwards' replacement as head of the state Supreme Court. It would take some time for the details of this position swap to fall into place, and thus, it would largely fall to the territorial secretary, Nathaniel Pope, who was already in the area, to begin the work of setting up the territorial government until Edwards could get to the new capital of Kaskaskia and assume office. We'll leave matters in the West there for now, and turn back to the nation's capital, as Madison had a couple of other important decisions to make in the early days of his presidency. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As mentioned in episode 3.39, Jefferson had nominated William Short as U.S. Minister to the Russian Empire in order to begin a direct dialogue with Tsar Alexander, but the Senate had rejected this nomination as a final rebuke of the outgoing president. Upon taking office, Madison had to decide whether to resubmit Short's nomination to the Senate of the 11th U.S. Congress or make a new nomination. The Russian Tsar had already designated a diplomatic representative to be based in Washington, D.C. moving forward, so a reciprocal representative to be sent to St. Petersburg was only customary. Given the sentiments expressed by senators about Short, which resulted in his rejection, Madison decided it was safer to go with another nominee. And thus, on March 6th, he sent a note requesting that a visitor to the city in town on business stop by to see him that day. John Quincy Adams was in town acting as legal counsel in a case before the Supreme Court, and apparently had no idea prior to that when he arrived for his visit with Madison, the president would offer him the post of U.S. Minister to Russia. Further, Madison didn't give him long to consider, as he wanted to send the nomination to the Senate in a half hour. Adams asked how long the appointment would last, and the president estimated three to four years. Adams accepted, and his name was sent to the Senate that day. Unfortunately for Adams, the Senate was still not in a cooperative mood and declined to take up the nomination the next day by a vote of 17 to 15. They did at least provide the feedback that, this time, it wasn't Adams's nomination that they objected to, but rather the very idea of a minister to Russia. If he hadn't already gotten the hint, one can imagine that Madison was quickly realizing that he had a long four years ahead of him. As if the business of overseeing the operations of the federal government weren't enough, Madison found himself drawn into Pennsylvania politics. As part of a case that had been winding its way in and out of state and federal courts since 1778, involving a ship that had been captured at sea and impounded as a prize for during the Revolutionary War, Chief Justice John Marshall had ordered the enforcement of an 1803 ruling against the daughters of the original impounder, both of whom were up in age by this point and would be put in dire financial straits if they had to pay back the over $15,000 involved including interest. The Rittenhouse heiresses, as they came to be dubbed, found a champion in the form of Pennsylvania Governor Simon Snyder, a Democratic Republican, who convinced the Pennsylvania state legislature to approve a bill authorizing Snyder to call out the state militia to protect the sisters from a federal marshal who had been charged to arrest the two women. As the standoff worsened, Governor Snyder appealed to President Madison on April 6th for his intervention in the matter. As the person who had championed the Constitution's ratification, the situation put Madison in quite a precarious position as he had to choose between his duty to the nation and the support of his party. While Madison, in his reply, rebuked Snyder and asserted that, quote, 
the executive of the United States is not only unauthorized to prevent the execution of a decree sanctioned by the Supreme Court of the United States, but is expressly enjoined by statute to carry into effect any such decree where opposition may be made to it. He did agree to pass the matter along to Congress, who could act, should they so choose, to support the claim of the Rittenhouse heiresses. He also provided some cover for Snyder and relief to the situation by pardoning the commanding officer of the militia and seven men under him who had been indicted for opposing the federal marshal's efforts to arrest the heiresses. With appointments and domestic matters mostly settled for the time being, Madison was able to really focus on the greater challenge faced by his administration, Anglo-American relations. For those who listen to the Jefferson series, you know that the end of the Jefferson presidency found diplomatic relations with the United Kingdom at a low ebb. The special mission of British envoy George Rose, discussed in episode 3.38, had been a fruitless endeavor. Thankfully for the incoming administration, though, the U.S. Minister to Britain, William Pinckney, had been at work in London once an opening presented itself. In a session of Parliament on January 19, 1809, the government found itself under attack by MPs on its heretofore hardline stance against the Americans. Thus, British Foreign Secretary George Canning grew more amenable in meetings with Pinckney, and the American minister suggested that, rather than naming another special envoy, the British minister already in Washington, David Erskine, should be granted authority to negotiate with the incoming administration to resolve matters stemming from the Chesapeake Leopard Affair as well as the British orders and council, which were seen as a threat to American shipping. Canning, believing that the new Non-Intercourse Act that was at the time being pushed through Congress did not single Britain out, as he felt the Embargo Act had, but rather applied equally to Britain and France, and offered a possibility of a resumption of trade, felt that there was now room to negotiate, and thus drafted new instructions to Erskine, on January 23, 1809. Erskine, by the time of Madison's inauguration, had been at his post in Washington for just over two years. Unlike his predecessor, Anthony Mary, Erskine had gotten along well with the Jefferson administration. However, as noted by historian William Masterson, quote, neither the president nor his cabinet regarded Erskine as influential at home. Indeed, the very contrast between Britain's rigorous measures and the friendly goodwill of her envoy emphasized his lack of influence. Indeed, in sharp contrast to Mary, Erskine was in cordial relations with administration officials while, quote, Federalists regarded Erskine with a disappointed and lofty disdain. Despite being out of step with the government back home, though, Erskine was retained at his post and did what he could to influence matters on the ground and supply information back to London. Masterson credits the continued war with France, as well as a shaky political situation in London, with Erskine's being retained at his post. But I think we should note that, as discussed in episode 3.33, a sizable portion of British diplomats at the time saw the Washington mission as being akin to exile in a backwater, and thus it would have been difficult to find a replacement for Erskine. Early April 1809 would finally bring Erskine an opportunity to positively influence U.S.-British relations. One can imagine Erskine's eagerness in looking through the new instructions from Canning, as well as his disappointment 
once he had finished the dispatch. First, picking up from the Rose mission in the prior year, Canning was willing to offer reparations for the Chesapeake Leopard affair, as had been offered by Rose, but, quote, only after receiving explicit formal revocation of Jefferson's Chesapeake Proclamation closing American ports to British warships. Canning was also willing to offer up the revocation of the Orders in Council if, quote, one, America would open its borders to British warships and withdraw its trade embargoes against Britain, but maintain these restrictions against France and her allies. Two, America would renounce wartime trade with the French colonies denied to her in peace. And three, Britain would be free to capture American vessels trading with France and her allies. These terms would, as described by Masterson, create, quote, a de facto Anglo-American economic alliance to be enforced by the British Navy. Erskine knew these terms would be a non-starter with the Madison administration. Still, as Canning had opened up the possibility of revoking the orders in council, Erskine felt that there might still be a chance of negotiating something that would be acceptable to both sides. On April 7, 1809, Erskine reached out to the new Secretary of State, Robert Smith, to notify him, quote, that he, i.e. Erskine, was empowered to settle the major commercial differences between the nations. Neither Smith, who was new to the role, nor Madison, who had been his predecessor, asked to see Erskine's instructions which he had been given authorization by Canning to share with the administration, but, obviously hoping to not spoil the mood before they had even begun, had withheld. Now, to be fair to Madison and Smith, since Erskine's role was just to begin negotiations, which could potentially be finalized by a special envoy who would be empowered to conclude a treaty, Armstrong notes that Erskine wasn't required to share his written instructions with the Americans. However, as we shall soon see, Erskine's choice to only relay his instructions verbally to Madison and Smith would soon cause trouble for all three. Madison met with Secretary Smith and Erskine on April 13th to kick off the negotiations, and Erskine immediately shared that if the U.S. would agree to lift the non-intercourse laws against Britain, the British government was willing to revoke the orders in council. However, Erskine deviated from the conditions specified in his instructions and instead said that there would be an immediate revocation of the orders in council the week after the agreement was finalized. His instructions clearly said that there would have to be proof of all three conditions that Canning had outlined had been adopted before the orders would be removed. Smith, in a meeting with Madison on April 15th, expressed his disbelief in Erskine's offer for such a quick turnaround. As Erskine rationalized in his mind that the second and third of Canning's conditions would already be covered under U.S. law and policy by the conclusion of the treaty and Madison restoring trade with Britain under the revocation of the Orders in Council while still prohibiting trade with France, he chose to focus on that first condition. Bearing in mind that Madison and Smith had only heard Erskine's instructions secondhand and hadn't read Canning's actual letter to the British minister, they and the other cabinet members assumed that Erskine wouldn't abandon two of the three conditions 
without knowing that Canning would honor the terms negotiated. Thus, Smith and Erskine exchanged diplomatic notes only a few days after negotiations began, outlining the terms as discussed, and with Erskine setting a date of June 10, 1809, for the withdrawal of the British Orders in Council. With this in hand, on April 19, Madison issued a proclamation with the authority given to him by the Non-Intercourse Act to restore normal trade relations with Britain. Madison saw the Erskine Agreement, as it came to be referred to, as the vindication of his and Jefferson's ideas about using economic pressure to exert influence in international relations. Further, this early triumph for the new administration, resolving issues years in the making, boosted Madison's political profile. Even Federalist papers such as the Connecticut Current had to admit that this was a great feat, with that paper noting that, quote, we owe it to President Madison and his cabinet to say, and we do it with pride and with pleasure, that they have come forward with a degree of promptness and manliness which reflects much honor on them and the country. Mr. Madison is now effectually resisting the French decrees by a total non-intercourse with that country, and this nation will thank him for it to the latest generation. With word going out up and down the eastern seaboard that ships that had been sitting idle for over a year could finally set sail with their cargoes for Britain, Madison had a bit more clout that he could use to advance his agenda with the Congress set to come back in session in just over a month's time. The President, however, was unaware of the developments across the Atlantic at around the same time as he and Secretary Smith were meeting with Erskine. When last we discussed affairs in Europe in episode 3.39, French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte had taken control of Spain only to face staunch resistance to the puppet regime he had set up under his brother Joseph. The setbacks suffered in Spain in July were exacerbated the next month when a British force under the command of Sir Arthur Wellesley landed in Portugal and, on August 21, 1808, defeated the French force under the command of General Jean Andos Junot, forcing the surrender of Junot's entire army of around 26,000 soldiers and pushing French forces out of Portugal. With one portion of the Iberian Peninsula secured, the road was then open for the British force to continue on to Spain. The beleaguered King Joseph wrote to his brother Napoleon, asserting his intent, quote, to renounce reigning over a people who first had to be subdued by arms, and recommended that Napoleon pull all French troops from Spain. Anyone who knows anything about Napoleon knows that the French emperor was not one to retreat. Instead, he wrote to Joseph that, quote, I'm resolved to push ahead most actively with this Spanish business. The future security of my peoples, the prosperity of commerce, and the maritime peace are all dependent upon these important operations. Before he could turn his direct attention to Spain, however, Napoleon had to ensure that the Russian Empire remained on the sidelines and that he wasn't forced to fight on an eastern and a western front. Napoleon met with Russian Tsar Alexander at Erfurt in the Confederation of the Rhine in September and October of 1808 as a follow-up to the Treaty of Tilsit, which had ended the War of the Fourth Coalition. From Napoleon's point of view, the two monarchs got along well, 
And he wrote back to Empress Josephine that, quote, I'm content with Alexander, and he must be with me. If he were a woman, I do believe I could make him my mistress. Alexander, however, was merely biding his time. The Russian nobility had not been pleased with the forced capitulations at the end of the previous war and with Napoleon's establishing a puppet state in Poland, which they considered to be traditionally Russian territory. Even within the royal household, Alexander faced pressure from his mother, who bemoaned, quote-unquote, that bloody tyrant, Napoleon. Alexander himself was no fool. He had witnessed firsthand Napoleon's humiliating treatment of Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm and was under no illusions that he might not find himself in the same boat at some point. However, he knew that if he acted prematurely, Russia could face defeat once more, and his reputation, as well as the future of all of Europe, might be at risk. Thus, he decided to play the long game and reaffirm the alliance between France and Russia on October 12, 1808. As Alexander wrote at the time, he plans, quote, Let Napoleon take us for granted. Let us gain some time in order to prepare ourselves for the day of reckoning. When the day comes, we will all vigorously assist in the fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. With the Eastern Front seemingly secure, Emperor Napoleon, after a brief stopover at his palace at saint Cloud, made his way to Spain at the end of October. With Napoleon and around 90,000 new troops on the ground, the French army was able to retake Madrid by December 4th and restore King Joseph to the throne from which he had fled back in the summer. Though a British force had to be evacuated from northern Spain in mid-January 1809 after launching an assault on Napoleon's communication lines in the region, the British and Spanish forces were able to stop the French emperor's planned assault on southern Spain and Gibraltar, and the Peninsular War settled into a stalemate with the French in control of northern and central Spain and the allied forces of Britain, Spain, and Portugal in control of Portugal and the southern portion of the peninsula. Napoleon could not concern himself with breaking the stalemate, however, as the new year brought reports of the Austrians readying for war. With that, the emperor returned to Paris in late January to make plans to fight on the Eastern Front. The Austrian forces had been building back up since their defeat in the War of the Third Coalition back in 1806 with financial aid provided by Great Britain. On February 8th, the Austrian government formally agreed to, quote, a full-scale campaign against France. On April 9th, the Austrian army, under the command of Austrian Archduke Karl, marched into French-dominated Bavaria. Without a formal declaration of war, this action brought about the beginning of the War of the Fifth Coalition, otherwise known as the turn of events that Napoleon had been trying to avoid. Due to the Peninsular War, the French emperor did not have nearly as many troops available in Central Europe as he had during the previous coalition wars. However, he was determined to meet the Austrian challenge head-on. We'll have to see what happens and how it impacts U.S. relations with the European powers in a future episode, for our time together is drawing to a close. Before we part ways, though, I'd like to say a special thanks again to Alicia for providing the intro quote for this episode. Be sure, once you're done with this episode, to check out Civics and Coffee wherever you get your podcast. 
I'll also have a link to our website on the Source Notes page for this episode. Special thanks to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you would like to get Christian's assistance with your podcast, just go to Your Podcast Pal, that's all one word, dot com for more information about his services. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. You can find out more information about the Itinerant Band, as well as much more, by navigating over to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Past episodes, links to information on all the presidents, and how to subscribe to the podcast can all be found there. There's also information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can support the podcast. Leaving a rating and review really helps to get the word out there and let folks know why Presidencies is worth giving a try. I recently had a five-star review left on Apple Podcasts by Refined Fool titled, One of My Favorite Shows, which read as follows, quote, very educational and Jerry is a great host. Thanks so much for that shout out. And thanks to all of you who have helped spread the word about the podcast. Even with all of our advancements in the 21st century, word of mouth is still the most powerful form of promotion. Special thanks also to the patrons of the podcast. Matthew, Jeremy, Michelle, Ike, Joshua, Eric, Howard, Michael, Kara, and Scott. Their financial support helps to offset the cost of podcasting, including hosting fees, editing, equipment, and research resources. If you would like to join them as a patron of the podcast, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media if you don't follow me on there already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey through the Madison presidency. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.